0: the Slaughter and May podcast. Hello and welcome to the fourth in our series of Slaughter and May podcasts, Redundancy in Focus. I'm Claire Fletcher, a professional support lawyer in the employment team, and today I'm joined by Richard Goldstein, our Head of Pensions Knowledge, and Ian Brown, our Incentives Senior Counsel. Today's episode looks at the pensions and incentives aspects of redundancy. There are five key points that Richard and Ian will discuss. Firstly, the potential for generous defined benefit pension treatment on redundancy. Secondly, some tax issues to bear in mind for redundancy pension benefits. Thirdly, the implications of redundancy for all employee share plans. Fourthly, how the position differs with executive awards. And finally, what approach the employer might want to take to incentivising survivors of a redundancy process. So Richard, can I ask you to start on the pensions aspects? If an employee is fortunate enough to still benefit from a form of defined benefit accrual what implications might there be if they're made redundant
1: thanks claire you're right defined benefit accrual is quite rare these days and it's really rather the exception to the norm although we do see defined benefit accrual coming up sometimes in the context of redundancy exercise if you if the employee is lucky enough to have defined benefit accrual you do need to check the pension scheme rules to see what is provided on redundancy. Sometimes on redundancy, there are very generous benefits that are provided, and that can particularly be the case for employees formerly employed in the public sector. These more generous benefits are not typically funded for in the ordinary course for the pension scheme, so there may be an immediate and significant cost to the business if these redundancy benefits are granted. A few other points to note are that it can be unclear on the face of some scheme rules whether these more generous benefits apply and legal advice, therefore, may be needed. It can also be difficult in some cases to amend the scheme rules to change this generous benefit. We have been av- advising in a few cases recently on, for employers trying to amend out these more generous provisions and in practice this is quite difficult to achieve.
0: So certainly something to think about for defined benefit schemes. In terms of tax, though, there are some issues to consider for both DB and DC schemes.
1: Yes. So I wanted to raise two quite unrelated tax points, one to the advantage of the employee and one perhaps to the disadvantage to the employee. And as you say, these relate to both defined contribution or DC and defined benefit or DB accrual. So firstly, there may be a tax advantage for an employee if you use a salary sacrifice arrangement, the way that the salary sacrifice arrangement would work would be rather than the employee receiving the redundancy payment and paying potentially significant tax on, on a large part of it, the employer can instead make a contribution to the pension scheme and employer contributions to a pension scheme can be uh, a, quite a tax efficient in the hands of the employee. The one thing to to note on this approach, though, is that there are limits on the amount of contributions that could be made to a pension scheme. The limits are are, are referred to by reference to the annual allowance. And that ties in with a second point I wanted to make, which is perhaps more of a disadvantage, particularly for higher earners. The disadvantage is that the redundancy payment itself can take the income of the higher earner above the annual allowance, um, above the tapered annual allowance. So, where income of high earners is above a certain level, the actual annual allowance that you can make by way of employer and employee contributions to a pension scheme reduces or tapers down. So, this could be rather unfortunate for the employee in question in that they end up paying tax both on the redundancy payment itself and also on the pension contributions that they've made in that tax year because the redundancy payment itself has taken them above the level of income required for the tapered annual allowance.
0: Thanks, Richard. Turning now to the incentives implications of redundancy, what are the key share plans issues that you see coming up, Ian?
2: Well, to a certain extent, that depends on whether you're talking about an all-employee or an executive plan. Let's deal with the all-employee plans first. If you've got an HMRC-approved all-employee plan, like a share-save plan or a share-incentive plan, then 99 times out of 100, redundancy will be an explicit good lever event. What that means in practice is that SIP participants will retain all of their planned shares and share-save participants will have six months from their cessation of employment to exercise their options using the savings that they've made up to the time of exercise. Now, the relevant tax legislation exempts any gains that the employees make under share save or sip from income tax and national insurance contributions so that's one little piece of good news for people who are going through what is generally a less than ideal situation
0: yes absolutely so how does that compare with what you see on say an ltip or a deferred bonus award
2: the position on executive awards is a bit more complicated That's because in many modern plans, redundancy is not explicitly referred to as a good lever event.
0: And why is that?
2: Because companies have tended to move away from redundancy as an explicit good lever trigger, as some departures are colloquially referred to as redundancies in inverted commas, even though the individual is actually being managed out. In those circumstances, companies don't want there to be an inadvertent entitlement to the share awards by virtue of that person being deemed to be redundant.
0: So without an explicit redundancy trigger, how would a company go about making somebody a good lever in a redundancy scenario?
2: The remuneration committee or the remuneration committee's delegate for below-board employees will have to exercise the discretion that's commonly found in Plan Rules to treat the departing employee as a good lever on a case-by-case basis. Now, when that happens, there are a couple of other discretions that the Remuneration Committee will need to think about as well. Firstly, when is the individual going to receive the shares underlying the award? Normally, we'd expect the default position under executive plan rules to be that the award pays out at the normal time as if the individual hadn't ceased employment, but there's sometimes the flexibility to accelerate that vesting. Delivering the shares at the time of cessation of the employment is one of the company's easy gives um, that the company can deliver to an employee at a time when money otherwise might be a bit tight. Of course, if you're accelerating vesting and the award is subject to performance conditions, then the company will need to work out the basis on which those performance conditions can be assessed early.
0: And would there also need to be some thought about prorating of awards?
2: Yeah. uh, Remuneration committees will want to consider whether it's appropriate to apply or disapply the default time pro rating of awards that you'll usually find in share plan rules. And as we've discussed in previous podcasts, uh, the disapplication of preemption rights discretion, as well as how you're going to assess the performance conditions, those discretions all need to be operated in a legally compliant way by the remuneration committee, which will involve taking into account all relevant factors and following a fair process.
0: So we've talked about those individuals who are actually being made redundant. What happens to the awards granted to those individuals who are remaining with the company?
2: Um, It's a really good point. The focus when a company is going through a redundancy exercise is always principally going to be on those who are sadly having to leave the company, but that doesn't mean you should forget about the other employees either. Um, At a technical level, uh, there'll often be the flexibility for the performance conditions applicable to long-term incentive awards to be adjusted to reflect the more challenging economic circumstances that are likely to have led to the redundancy situation. But as you appreciate, remuneration committees will need to handle those provisions with care from both an investor relations perspective and an employee relations perspective. One of the things a company may consider following a redundancy exercise is an all-employee share award to bind people together and incentivise those remaining with the company who may very reasonably be feeling a certain amount of survivor's guilt.
0: Presumably, in circumstances where there have been redundancies the company is unlikely to want to expend much cash on these sorts of arrangements
2: absolutely um, these types of awards will normally be satisfied with new issue shares as the issue of new shares to satisfy awards will be the most cost-effective way of sourcing shares for the company now that means if the company is listed in London the plan under which these share awards would be granted would need shareholder approval. So from a planning perspective, when you're putting a new share plan in place, it's worthwhile looking at including this sort of flexibility to grant these types of one-off awards so they can be made in scenarios like a post-redundancy one.
0: Thanks Ian and thanks Richard. That brings us to the end of today's podcast. We've got one more episode in this Redundancies series which we'll be publishing next week and that one will pick up on the theme of survivors of redundancy that Ian and I have just been discussing. Uh, just as a reminder you can find all of our podcasts via the Slaughter and May website. Thank you and goodbye for now. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.